Welcome to Ontario Loud, the podcast about politics, public policy, and current affairs, hosted by recovering political and policy staff, recorded right here in Ontario. I'm Chris Martin. I'm Garima Talwar Kapoor. I'm Sam Andre. And I'm Alvin Tejo. What a difference a month can make, friends. We stopped recording the week before Christmas, and it's only been, what, like four weeks, but it feels like a whole new world. And excited for season five of Ontario Loud. Can you believe it? I mean, last time we had a different president, we had a different governor general. It's a whole new world out here. And a new year. I feel like we should say Happy New Year. It's still okay to say Happy New Year to everyone listening. (laughs) Season five is when many great sitcoms jump the shark. So we need to be conscious of that and keep up our high quality uh, standard. Well, hopefully we don't lose Alexi's followers now that he's no longer on the pod. He sort of spins off and creates his own spin-off podcast. Hopefully we don't lose those listeners. The will-they-won't-they tension between Alexi and, I guess, the budget segments that Alexi used to do. We'll need to find a way to, like, get the engagement back on that front. But yeah, just... We can do it. I have faith in us. Well, today, I thought maybe it's just worth recapping some of the stuff that's happened in the last four to five weeks, which, when I made the list to put in this introduction was kind of staggering. We have the resignation of Ontario's finance minister from cabinet, a lockdown that escalated into a stay-at-home order, the ejection of more conservative MPPs from caucus for protesting the lockdown, all amidst a post-Christmas pandemic case count boom that appears to be just subsiding now. There is President Biden and what a new Democratic totality of the U.S. government might mean for all of us. And just a a dizzying shifting poll numbers for the Ford government. So just like a ton of stuff that so I thought we might uh, go through just some of it. And also New Year, I thought we might talk about some New Year's predictions and resolutions, but maybe starting with the pandemic, which I think is the main thing on everyone's mind right now, as we are still stuck in our homes waiting to get our vaccines, with our governments appearing to struggle to keep in check. So Grim, I want to check on how we're doing here. I mean, things aren't great, and that's putting it mildly. As of Sunday, January 24th, there's been over 255,000 cases of COVID-19 in the province and just over 5,800 deaths. To give us some context, when we released our last pod in December, at the end of December, there were about 160,000 cases and almost 4,200 deaths. That means that almost 40% of the total cases that Ontario's had over the course of the pandemic and 30% of the deaths have occurred just in the last month. I think we really need to let that sink in. It's been exactly one year today. We're recording on January 25th, since Ontario reported its first COVID-19 case. And as fatigued as everybody is by the pandemic, it's really important to understand just how devastating the past couple of weeks have been. And it's not about shock and awe. It's just kind of, we've kind of lulled ourselves into thinking that this is like a new state of normal when none of this is normal. And actually, quite shocking if we just remind ourselves what the past couple of weeks have actually looked like. So it's it's been a grim month. And so if we start at a high level and reflect on how we got here, I mean, what do you guys think this moment means for us and what should it mean for our leaders? 
Yeah, no, I on our obviously as a podcast, we're in close competition with Pod Save America. And in these segments, like it always, they always go like, it's not great, Dan, or it's not great, John. And I feel like that's like, I just, we talked about this before the break. It was the last subject we left with before. And just for the realization that, yeah, it's been a year of COVID-19. It's been a year of this for us to be in the most devastating phase of the pandemic, like right now. And also for us to have implemented so few lessons and for the government response to be as immature as it continues to be is Mm -hmm. not where I thought we would be. I mean, we are starting to see, I think, as a result of maybe some of the numbers that you talked about, some new net disapproval of the government. Abacus Data released some polling late last week that showed the Ford uh, government's approval rating dipping quite a bit, but that didn't really translate to vote intention. And when David at Abacus Data asked folks who, what they thought about the government's handling of the pandemic. Is it, could it have been better? Uh, is it great? Or is it about as well as they could have possibly done? The majority of respondents to the poll indicated that the Ford government is doing about as well as any government could be expected to do. So, no. I mean, that's pretty shocking to me when testing and tracing are not scaled to any significant degree where we have closed schools again when that was arguably a preventable outcome and the only people i see outraged about it are sort of people on twitter so it just on this sort of after this month in this anniversary i reflect on the work that we still have to do as progressives to educate people i mean i think that if we are to make this an electoral issue for the ford government if we are to have this kind of management have political cost. The public just is not in the place where it needs to be to accept that argument yet. And that's pretty shocking considering the intro you just gave us, Grima. Yeah. And let's let's remember where we started with the Ford government, right? Like before the pandemic, their polling numbers were in the pits, right? They had spent a year and a half doing nothing, alienating as many people as they could, creating enemies, doing things that were unbelievably partisan. So compared to what people expected Doug Ford to be able to do, which was absolutely nothing to doing the bare minimum to try and keep people alive and saying all the right things. He knows what to say. He knows how to talk about 800 pound gorillas and saying, I will fight this and say all the right bullshit that he keeps saying every week. But what has he actually done? Right. I mean, the failure of this government during the second wave, not to plan and anticipate and to prepare for the things that we already knew were coming during the first wave is astounding. And to date, they still haven't done a number of the things that they said they would. They were supposed to pay PSWs an additional $3 an hour, which they announced back in October. They didn't implement or have a plan to protect those living in long-term care homes, despite having a study done last summer talking about all the errors from their first wave. They still refuse to bring back paid sick days, which everyone says we need for all Ontario workers to keep people safe. And for other parents like myself, we have three kids pretending to learn online, and it's just such a fucking waste of time. They haven't done any real training or provided the tools necessary to make online learning for two and a half million kids bearable. It really sucks. So I like I think we need to do a better job of talking about all the things that the government has failed to do. And barring a really good example from another province or uh, another jurisdiction, we have to be able to show that this is how it could have been managed better. I, I agree with that. I think there, the energy and the kind of focus on rapid uh, solutioning that you saw across the world, but including here in Ontario in that like March to June maybe period, 
is just so gone. And like, there's just every day, it feels like Groundhog Day and watching the government defend their lack of action day after day. It's all a bit much to take. But yeah, other than more complaining, I don't know that I have much to add. I think something important for progressives to think about is that the majority of people don't get their news from Twitter. And I feel like we all spend a lot of time reading and thinking and talking to people through Twitter. And we're talking like the idea of the echo chamber is really real in progressive circles. I think actually I remember at the beginning of this going to a really awesome workshop that I think Sam, you organized in Grima, you spoke at with friend of the pod, Armenian Lizian on how governments were motivating and working together to collectively address problems. And I, I remember just feeling this great rush of hope because I think we made an assumption that the need for collective action was just so obvious. And I don't want to like discount the fact that there has been some real progress there, but the sense of individual responsibility for outcomes in the pandemic, I think is much more powerful and intransigent than perhaps uh, we realized at the beginning. And the sort of inherent value of collective action has not been as as obvious to people as we might have hoped. And maybe it's a victim of its own success, like CERB and the federal government has, have done tons of investment and there has been real progress made where we haven't seen it as the province and folks literacy as to how good things could be versus how they are right now is not where it needs to be for folks to be angry at the province so until we solve that i'm not sure we're gonna solve the thing so from maybe a bit of a downer to uh, a source of perhaps some hope, I want to switch it up for a second to talk about uh, vaccines, which will hopefully allow us to leave our homes and see our friends and family. Maybe we record a podcast in the same room, which I'm excited to do again at some point in the future. So Sam, how are we doing on vaccines? Yeah, it's an interesting picture. I'm excited to to dig into it a bit. So folks will probably recall the government took a lot of heat for pausing vaccinations over the Christmas holidays, which General Rick Hillier then apologized for, who's responsible for the vaccine rollout. But things have sort of picked up since then. We were peaking around 15,000 a day. And as of yesterday, we'd given out 280,000 doses of that vaccine, which is about 2% of Ontario's overall population. And that is of 411,000 doses that we've received. So about we've used about 70% of the doses we've uh, received to date and 30% are unused. And actually the pace has been falling over over the last few days. The government had set a goal of administering vaccines in all long-term care homes across the province by February 15th, but as of today actually has moved that up now to February 5th. And most of the hot zones, Greater Toronto Area, Ottawa, Windsor-Essex are done vaccinating the long-term care homes. So that is maybe some good news. Mm -hmm. And that's the first, I think that's the first round of vaccines. So like not everyone has received their double doses, but yeah, correct, correct. I think any progress is good news. Like even though I might not be as far as it could have been and even the like nice to give the vaccine a Christmas holiday, but it's a, despite the slowdown, I, I do get a lift every single time I hear uh, about it. But want to maybe go back and ask like, is this actually a good timeline for us? Like at the pace you mentioned, where are we going to be? And how are we doing in relation to the rest of Canada and the world? Yeah, it's a really good question. So, I mean, maybe let's start with the world. So Canada is apparently in fifth place um, in terms of total number of, of vaccines administered. And the numbers sound big, right? Like giving up 15,000 a day, that sounds really, you know, great. But I think then 
when people hear it would take three years at that pace to reach all Ontarians, people are like, oh, that's, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> and so this is going to have to ramp up significantly and new distribution mechanisms uh, are going to have to be created. The government is in theory working on this, but we've all been let down by this government before in different ways. I guess specific to the long-term care homes, Alberta, BC, and Quebec claim to be done vaccinating their long-term care residents. We are behind at least on that. And actually, John Frazier, the MPP for Ottawa South, has been sort of on Twitter kind of leading the charge saying, we had enough doses in Ontario at the end of December to finish long-term care homes. Like, why is this taking so long? So I think there's fair criticism there though so there's that and then just adding more wrinkles to it pfizer announced that they are doing upgrades to their plant in belgium to allow them to accelerate the distribution going forward which means it will temporarily slow down their distribution to canada in january and february though they say they will make it up by march which has become a political lightning rod ford was out saying that he will drive a truck down to michigan to pick up the vaccines if only the Pfizer CEO would give us the vaccines. It was all a bit uh, much. And then Trudeau had to call the Pfizer CEO. Anyway, politics galore on this rollout. The one that really got me was he was talking about, he was like, I think when it first got, he was like, he was like, I would be like so far up that guy's yin yang that just really ugly a like just a really ugly comment and really indicative of a government that has almost become like reliant on folksy aphorisms to talk to the public but like they're not talking to the public in a way that is is helpful and actually either leads me to believe that ford doesn't understand what is happening or is so afraid of the public backlash that he doesn't think the public can tell the truth i watched both the federal briefing and the provincial one and the federal one the takeaway you got from watching that was, yes, this is unfortunate, but they're doing it to get us more vaccines faster. And we, by March, we will have had the same number of vaccines as we signed up for. And so it kind of makes sense. And like, imagine the premier was out there reassuring people, explaining this to people. I understand why folks would be upset about this, but like, A, it's not in our control. B, it suits our long-term interest. And it seems like the kind of thing that maybe a folksy aphorism could help explain rather than cast blame and doubt and aspersion and actually like distort for folks what is actually happening. Like, I think this is an instance where the premier did some real harm. I mean, like set aside the politics. I mean, it's literally the only thing most people are thinking about is when can I fucking get outside of my house and get that vaccine, right? And like, they have all the information right now that they need to, you know, clarify who's going to vaccinate me, right? Is it going to be my doctor? Is it going to be my pharmacist? Is it, are we going to like all gather together in high school gyms or whatever? The information right now to say, if you're age 60, here's approximately when you'll get it. If you're age 70, here's approximately when you'll get it. <clears throat> They're rolling out none of that information. And so people are just left with these news reports of the pace and are confused and so are looking for someone to blame. And if you're predisposed to blaming Trudeau or you're predisposed to blaming Ford, you'll like pick pick your poison and like i just i don't think any level is actually being that responsible but in fairness the ontario government is responsible for the distribution as you brought up sam that john frazier was talking about we could have uh vaccinated every person in a long-term care home before the end of 2020 and so yeah we're going to get to it by the beginning of february that's five weeks worth of not getting vaccinations in long-term care homes, of which we're seeing most of the deaths. You're talking about 25-ish people a day who are dying 
every day in January because they weren't vaccinated at the end of December, right? Like the government has to own that, that they made that decision as well. If two thirds of all the cases are in people over 80, and those are all the ones who are of the people who are dying, why wouldn't this government have decided that we should target those people first? So like they have to own that and they have to be responsible for that decision. Yeah. So I've got a couple of things. This is going to be an unpopular opinion, but I actually think that all governments are trying their hardest to get the vaccine out as quickly as they can. Are there roadblocks? Are people tripping up over themselves? Of course they are. But I actually think in this instance, especially given that the Ontario government is more focused on solutions like a vaccine rather than investing in other public health measures that are absolutely needed in tandem to help control the spread of the virus. Rapid testing, like test, trace, and isolate. Leave protected paid leave for essential workers who don't currently have it, like income supports, like good housing, because this government's not making those necessary investments, philosophically, it it would be most invested in the vaccine route. I, I do think that they're trying their best, but it's falling short. And because they're falling short on so many other measures that are good social policy and health policy ideas, the entire response is then falling short. And then And then just one last comment on the yin-yang comment, because I can't let it go. Like, it's full of bravado, yes, but it's also, it it, it evokes imagery of force. And so while I'm not a political person at all, don't think about things in terms of which demographic does it appeal to or not. Yes, some people might resonate with that kind of messaging, but I actually also think that it, especially amongst women, is a comment that many would not resonate with and actually find a bit repulsive. And so I actually don't see the media calling it out as much as it should have been called out or called out at all. And instead, it's being repeated again and again without people being really critical of overall communications from the government. Yeah, I think that's absolutely Right. Kristen Wong-Tam, Toronto City Councillor, and uh, Farrakhan made that point. And I actually thought that it was pretty enraged by the Premier's office response, which is basically like literally their press office said, we're not going to dignify that criticism with a comment, which I'm like, what does that say to how, what you think about women and how like just like literally no self-awareness about how that might be perceived. And I think it is a really important part of that particular comment. The operations piece, I think, does need to be separated a little bit because there are significant challenges. I mean, I've heard of some folks criticize the government for letting hospitals lead the charge, and which led to some stories of folks over the break getting if a long-term care worker or someone who didn't show up for their appointment, they had an unfrozen vial of vaccine. And so emails went out to like the hospital network to basically say, if you can come, you can get this vaccine because otherwise it's going to go to waste. I thought that some of the outrage about that, you can criticize the operational model. They had to pick an operational model. I think it's generally good that we were vaccinating. So I thought some of the outrage over that was, I see why it was there. I understand it. But I, I'm not mad at any of the folks who got vaccines who necessarily weren't frontline workers because of that. I do maintain a ton of rage for the politics that are being chosen to be run over this. And not to, to end up on a bit, but like Ivana Yellick in the Premier's office 
it's not just forward at a staff level. They're saying our hospitals are running out, which is A, contradicted by the example I just gave. B, the metric that they're using to say that the hospitals are running out of vaccine and it's not the province's problem is literally people running out and then more vaccines are coming next week. So Dominic LeBlanc from the federal government responded to that saying, you're running out by Friday, but on Sunday, you'll have more vaccines to distribute. So like just the the dirt that the Ford government is kicking up right now, I think is not getting enough attention because whose job is it to give vaccines to hospitals? It is theirs. And I just, it really bothers me. Well, hard to talk about the politics of the pandemic without talking about the biggest story of the break, the resignation of finance minister Rod Phillips after he took a private vacation to St. Bart's, a French island getaway that I didn't know about before, but it caters to the super rich after the country had closed its borders to non-essential travel. So St. Bart's apparently essential travel for Rob Phillips. Alvin, you had a tweet thread about this that kind of went viral over the break. So I thought I might just check in with you to where a month later, thoughts, reflections on this fairly high profile resignation. I mean, I would have loved to spend my Christmas holiday in St. Bart's, guys. I think we should have all gone together, pitched our, pulled our money together so we could afford a 5000 a night villa, which apparently where the Phillipses stayed at. This is where I make a pitch to our audience for uh, Patreon, OntarioLoud.ca <laughs> slash Patreon. So we can uh, record live from St. Bart's one day, one day. But you know, Chris, I think the issue is that it's the hypocrisy of it. It's the fact that this government has spent so much time telling people what not to do and then for many members of the government to go out and do that exact thing. As you always say in politics, the cover up is worse than the crime. But the crime here is just confoundingly stupid. It just seems to have such a lack of awareness of how this would look. Although at the same time, the fact that they tried to cover it up so much leads you to believe they knew that if they got caught, they'd be in some serious shit. But I don't believe for a second that he resigned or that he did that on his own accord. He came back early from his luxury villa just so he could get fired by Ford as publicly as possible. But the big issue for me moving forward is about the cover-up. Because to be clear, there is zero, absolutely zero chance that Doug Ford didn't know that his finance minister was leaving the country. He's a minister of the crown. He gets a diplomatic passport. He's got to clear all his personal travel with the premier's office, probably cabinet office and his caucus service bureau. He's not just any MPP, he's a minister, and he's not just any minister, he's the finance minister. He's on the emergency management committee. He's on the management oversight committee. He's on finance and treasury board. His staff, so because he's on those committees, he needs to know everything that's going on a regular basis. And he's part of the table that is actually fighting COVID, right? So they're having conversations with him while he's in St. Bart's, and they definitely know where he was. The other part of it is that he included way more people in his circle who are complicit as part of the scandal, who are actively lying, willingly lying to the public, right? Both the ministry and his constituency, helping him post pictures on social media to leave the impression that he was in his riding every day he was gone, although somehow managing to wear the same outfit for weeks at a time. My issue here is that Ford knew he let him go and he let Phillips fall on a sword. In my opinion, Doug Ford is just as responsible for the scandal as Rod is, but Rod is going to be the one who who owns most of it unless we push harder or the fact that Doug knew and that he let him go. So that was, I think, obviously the highest profile 
thing that has happened, but there's been a little family of stories like this, people going on vacations in positions of power, the CEO of the St. Joseph's Hospital Network, similar scandal, uh, a member of the vaccination task force just recently had to resign. In the London hospital. Yeah. There were a bunch of hospital staff or CEOs. Yeah. Obviously this is a clear area that the public hates this behavior and it like, but like how was the most predictable thing in the world. Like, how is it that the folks in charge of such important parts of our response could A, make these kinds of mistakes now at this point? Like, how does this kind of thing happen in the mind of a decision maker? We've been around senior decision makers. Yeah, I know I just commented, but like, my answer is that it's just sheer fucking privilege, right? It's these white people, these rich people who've never had anybody seriously tell them, no, you can't do that. And he's like, no, I can afford to do that. I'm going to go do that. So you can't tell me what to do. The rules don't apply to me, right? Yeah. yeah, I think to maybe put it a bit nuanced, representation matters in politics, right? And so if you're the finance minister and you can go to St. Bart's, a place that I also did not, I did not know exist, existed and I had to Google it. But of course, then, like if that is the perspective that you're bringing to your work, then of course, you're not going to do or invest in the things and advocate for policy changes that actually support those that aren't like you. And so in this pandemic, many have talked about how the inequities in our society have become unignorable, irrefutable, but they require active policy responses. And so you're not going to see investments in or adequate investments in supports for people living in poverty, for fair labor legislation. You're not going to see supports for people that are homeless if that is not something that you see as an active part of of your lived reality. It's not just a reflection of minister or former minister Phillips, but the rest of, of the government and caucus. It's confoundingly stupid. I don't know that I have much to add. I think privilege is a good word for it. But, but I think also, like he's still the MPP for Ajax, right? So I'm sure he's still giving lots of advice to this government because he's also known as one of the smarter people in that cabinet. Let's be honest, right? He has real experience, etc. No, I this is unrelated but it's not totally unrelated but just picking up on what you said Grima like I also saw uh, someone po- point out the other day that like has anything during the covid lockdown impacted deco labels the company that Doug Ford used to run no is that essential manufacturing I don't know enough about what they do but like I I think it's just like the lenses they are bringing to the decisions that they are making is really important and I think Rod's travel to St. Barts, let's just recall where it was again, is, and Switzerland in August. Let's not forget about that. And like, just let's forget about the craziness of doing it. Like you're the minister of finance and you claim you self-isolated both times. So you spent a month of this 10 months in isolation, like not working, like not at work during the pandemic. And you're the second most ranking official in the province. It's it's crazy. Like it, it confounds any explanation. Well, and, and at some point we should explore the fact that the media reported that it was another conservative MPP that actually leaked the story to them in the first place. So yes. some leadership implications there, and would love to dive into that another day. <laughs> Maybe it's time to stop putting privileged white dudes from Bay Street in these finance ministerial portfolios, thinking that is the only qualification that. Sh- 
you need to manage money. How did um, the CEOs of hospitals leave? Like, aren't the hospitals in crisis? Like, I, th- yeah. that's even more confounding. Yeah. No, it's like, I have I no... Imagine the CEO of a hospital is going every day, working 12-hour days. Like, I'm just... You know what I mean? Like, it, Yeah. And, and, like, yeah, in fairness, like, they probably have been and were like, I now deserve this. Like, this is a thing our human brains do sometimes. But yeah. lots of people didn't deserve to fight World War II as well. But it's like this is a moment of like historical significance well i think that's maybe enough covid for for one day i want to shift us maybe a little bit more broadly and ask you guys a what are your predictions for ontario and canada politics in the year 2021 since it's a new year and b do you guys have any new year's resolutions for yourselves personally So my prediction is that we are going to see a federal election in 2021. The speculation is that it's going to be the end of spring, early summer. I actually disagree because there is something called a pension that many members of the House of Commons will receive after six years of service, which would kick in around September, October, which, if you remember back to the Paul Martin days, was one of the reasons the government did not fall because the block chose to keep it propped up for another six months so that they could get their pensions. So we'll see if the the federal liberals try to trigger an election with the budget by putting a poison pill of some kind that the NDP won't support, or are they just going to try to trigger it themselves to try and make sure that they get a fresh new mandate to deal with the recovery? I'm not entirely sure what the excuse is going to be other than we need a new mandate to, to deal with all these challenges that we have uh, coming forward. And that's going to affect... Ontario politics a lot, obviously, because then you'll have the premier out there canvassing for federal conservative members. Aaron O'Toole, who is a the conservative leader, obviously, is an Ontario MP. So I think you're going to hear a lot about what has happened in Ontario in the federal discussion come the next election. No real resolutions for me other than the regular and try to eat better and stay fit. This year, I'm hopeful that a spirit of collaboration between different orders of government comes back but I am increasingly becoming more jaded about that. But I also think, and again, not to like fear monger, but I think people last year thought this is a new era of investments in our social infrastructure and in social policy needs. And I actually think that we're going to start to see a retrenchment again this year, unless there's active pushback. And so, because just as much as people are pushing for for investments that support people and people that have been marginalized by our systems, there's also active pushback against that. And, and you can start to see it in the mandate letters that the federal government put out. Of course, you can see it in the provincial politics playing out across the country. And so I think that's something that, while I remain hopeful, that is something for us to play both offense and defense on. Then in terms of New Year's resolutions, I think 2020 was a year of learning and 2021 is going to be a year of change just on a whole lot of fronts. And so really committed to eating as best as I can and being healthy and yoga and meditation and all of that good stuff. My uh, prediction is kind of similar to Grumio, but maybe a bit more political. Like, I think time is actually ripe for conservative politics. Probably in the late half of 2021, you like people will want government out of their way after living through a year plus of big government. And people, I think, rightfully will be asking for fiscal discipline at that time. And 
so like my prediction is that the Ford government rides high for much of 2021 to our great frustration and how that sets up 2022 or a potential early election, I think will be something we revisit a lot. I made a resolution to myself to read uh, more fiction that I felt like I was spending too much time thinking about deep, dark thoughts. <laughs> I'm going to read like trashy detective novels and things like that. So that's what I'm going to do. John le Carre. Let's let's do a John le Carre book club. I like, I have him on my, like, I love a good spy novel. Yes, I, I actually think we're going to see the federal government hesitate in a major way on the federal election. The pensions is, I, I, I think, a, a really good reason. But I think that all evidence points to me that the Ford government is going to fuck up the vaccine rollout in some way, shape or form. It's like, there's a big step before it scales to the public. And I, I don't think it's going to be like, way delayed but this i think if you were in the ottawa bubble right now they are confident that they are going to have secured enough doses to get everyone jabbed by september outside the ottawa bubble if those if but people literally don't have it in their arms by september i don't think the politics are super great for going to an election and i also side note little going to sneak in that i think we're going to see merrily fullerton demoted in cabinet again that's you know and if we don't i'm going to be really uh, removed sad. from cabinet is is more appropriate yeah how many you could totally like wa- how many walkertons on her watch at this point like it's like it's insane but yes i feel like we should start on news resolutions i feel like we should start an ontario allowed yoga club or maybe a yoga cast because that is mine as well i started doing it over the break and i'm like a total convert at this point and and sam we should read some we should read some trashy books i'm reading i just started reading actually the harry bosch series which is like from the 90s i'll let you know exciting all right recurring ontario live segment well that's it for us today this is our first se- episode of season five no we still don't have a consistent structure for the seasons but season five and uh, really excited we spent some time over the last month regrouping putting together a really interesting schedule we're going to be focusing on what the road between now and the next provincial election looks like we're going to be talking about the far right in ontario we're going to be talking about our social supports that we need to be boosting like paid sick leave housing uh, and whole bunches of stuff so thank you listeners for sticking with us for as long as you have and we're really excited to bring you another season's worth of content that's it for us today And that's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for listening. You've been listening to Ontario Loud, a podcast about politics and public policy in Ontario, hosted by Green Metallic Kapoor, Chris Martin, Alvin Tejo, and Sam Andrew. Harmon Mundy helps us do research, communications, and sends us funny memes in the group chat. If you like what you heard, you can go to iTunes and give us a review. The reviews really, really help boost us in the App Store. Or head to patreon.com slash Ontario Loud and support the pod for less than a price of a cup of coffee each month. It's easy, and it helps us keep doing this thing. If you want to interact with us on social media, you can get at us at on Twitter at, at @ontarioloud or send a note to ontarioloudmail at gmail.com. We love hearing from you. Finally, last but certainly not least, Ontario Loud is recorded on the traditional territories of the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabe, Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat peoples, and many nations. Toronto is governed by Treaty 13, and it is important to acknowledge that these treaties are important. Too often in our settler colonial society, we make conscious and unconscious attempts to erase this history and we must do everything we can to fight it we at ontario loud stand in solidarity with first nations in our community and we acknowledge that we have so so much more to do before there is truth and reconciliation in this country and that's all for us this week we will be back tuesday next tuesday at 6 a.m with another podcast for you have a great week